So uh, months ago, we were going through the schedule for who was going to be teaching each week, and um, we knew Landon was going to be gone. He is going to wrap up the Gospel of Matthew next Sunday. And if you're, yeah, <laughs> if you're regulars here, you know we've been going through that for about two years, verse by verse. That's what we do in this church, verse by verse, and dig into the scriptures. And uh, today, uh, <laughs> I just saw this note up here. <laughs> Did you do that? That's funny. David is awesome, but not as much as God. (laughs) I needed that. Thank you. Uh, um, So we knew that Landon was going to be gone, and he asked if I would teach on Christianity and culture. And I thought, I write about that. I talk about it on the radio Monday through Friday. I thought, really? Because I love just digging in the Word of God. And um, I said, okay, I'll do it. And I found some verses that I think are going to go into this nicely. But before we get into that, it's interesting. You, You hear a word or a concept throughout the week, and then you hear it in a worship song like I did this morning. And I thought about a Bible verse. I interviewed um, a man, uh, Dr. Andy Woods, uh, pastor and teacher this week. He's got an incredible book called The Coming Kingdom, and we were talking about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, seated on his throne, and um, I heard this worship song on the way here today. It's called, There is a Higher Throne, and then there's that song, I think the last one, second to last one you guys played, no, the last one. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones. And I thought, Jesus. And there is a higher throne, and his kingdom is coming. It's not here on earth yet. Let's, let's be clear. Satan's having his way, but God's given us all the tools we need, and he's given us his Holy Spirit. So this verse I thought of uh, to go into this teaching nicely today from Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. It says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. There is a higher throne. And the title of today's lesson, how did we get here? We look at America. We look at America and we know that it was birthed out of Judeo-Christian principles and values. And our, many of our founders were, were believers in God. Um, and yet here we are today where at least the name of Jesus, if not the word God with a capital G, the name of Jesus is like a cuss word today. Um, in our culture, in our society, and you go, what happened? So we're going to go through some history today, and we're going to start by giving you a couple of verses. Let me do this here. Three verses to start us off before we get into our main text. Luke eleven twenty eight says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And Psalm 11.3, very interesting verse. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Our foundations in this country have been attacked. They've been chipped away at, chipped away at, chipped away at. They're crumbling. But if the church, you and I, believers in Christ, his bride, if the church has its foundation built on the rock, capital R, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, then we will not be shaken. There's a verse that says, uh, Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Another translation says, I will not be moved. But you've got to set the Lord before you. And you've got to establish your foundation on the word of God because that is truth. Okay? 
So we are warned in scripture to guard against apathy, deception, the seductions of this world. We're instructed to contend for the faith, make disciples, resist the devil, train ourselves in godliness, to be disciplined in our walk with the Lord, to grow in the knowledge of Christ, to speak the truth in love, to produce lasting fruit, to press on and fight the good fight of faith, and many, many more instructions in the word of God. Why? Why so much? Why so many? Because it's easy to let up, isn't it? It's easy to get comfortable. It's easy to get apathetic. It's easy to conform to the pattern of the world around you. And that is what happened, not just to American culture, but the church in America. I don't need, we, we are gonna kind of make that case today briefly, just with a few bullet points. But um, I'm not necessarily talking about sin, but it does lead to that. What I'm talking about is just kind of blending in with the world, maybe being lukewarm in our faith, being less concerned about spiritual things, uh, prayer, being saved, maybe, and born again, but maybe ineffective and unproductive as Christians in our daily lives, as the church in America that Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Most of us struggle at times, I believe. I do, so I'm assuming that maybe most of you do. Struggle at times with loving this world a little too much. But what does the Bible say? Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we await a returning king. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Are you and I, doing the will of God. We must be diligent in our Christian lives, set apart for Christ, and proactive, and we have to be intentional about living this life for the Lord, don't we? If we are not intentional, life will take over. Busyness, distractions, obligations, responsibilities, and then we forget why we are here in the first place. What is your purpose in Christ? So let's go to some true history. The title today, How Did We Get Here? A Biblical Lesson for America. The, the key text today, and I don't think I have it in here because this, there's a lot of scriptures here. The key text is Judges. I'm sorry, let's start, let's start with Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Before we get to our main text, Joshua 24, 14 through 17, some fascinating history. I mean, they, Joshua led the people into the promised land, the conquest. They were with him. The people of that generation saw the signs of the Lord. They saw what he did. They saw miracles. They saw deliverance. And they went into the promised land. And Joshua led them. And the people were following God with all their hearts. Joshua 24, 14 says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Most of us are very familiar with that verse, aren't we? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, what does that look like? In America, particularly. So, how do the people respond to that? In verse 16, so the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, 
who did great signs in our sight and preserved us. They knew who God is and was. They knew what God did for them. Now, an amazing transition, and we are going to get to perhaps one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. One, there are some that are going, oh, can't believe the people did that. We're going to get to that. If you turn to Josh, I'm sorry, Judges. Now, we were just in Joshua. Flip over two pages to Judges chapter 2. Two pages in most Bibles. Judges chapter 2. And now Joshua's death. And unfortunately, Israel's unfaithfulness. And when, verse 6, Judges chapter 2, verse 6. And when Joshua had dismissed the people... The children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of the, his inheritance at Timnath Herez in the mountain of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. Now the next verse, verse 10, you ready? When all that generation had died, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 11, and served the Baals, and they forsook the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. We're going to make a parallel, draw a parallel with this section of scripture and the children of Israel to America. I think you guys already know where I'm going with this. These were God's chosen people. <laughs> it only takes a generation. Israel still has not yet learned. They're primarily a secular nation rejecting the Messiah. There are some believers over there. There is a remnant over in Israel, but they've pretty much rejected Jesus, Yeshua. What about us? All right, now let's point the finger back at the body of Christ in the United States of Entertainment. <laughs> in the early days of this country, people risked before this country was even here, people risked their health, their homes, their families, and in many cases, their lives to come to these shores and live for the one true God, to be free from religious persecution. You know, the church in England was persecuting true believers, and they didn't want to deal with that or be forced to go to a particular church, and the church was coming down on true believers over there, they needed to, to be in a land where they could worship God freely, and they came here. And I, part of the message today, I thought, this is going to tie in nicely with Thanksgiving this week, because we need to remember that this nation just didn't happen. You know, God just didn't plop down a few people in the middle of the country and say, now be fruitful and multiply. They came to this land to worship the one true God and live their lives for him. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so the Lord graciously brought people to North America all the way from England when sailing at that time, sailing on a ship. We're not talking about a big Viking cruise ship. You know, there's the, these wooden ships that were falling apart and getting storm beaten and battered and barely made it people were they had to throw off anything that was weighty in the storm so they're throwing off food and cargo just to try to make it across the ocean um it was an amazing it was a costly journey 
In those days, it was risky, it was long, it was treacherous. They sacrificed much to come here. But they made it by the grace of God. And history tells us about it. I want to share with you, do I have this on a slide? Yes. William Bradford, first governor of Plymouth Colony, um, 1620 was the year. He said this, being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth. Having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony. You probably didn't know that. That probably isn't even in history books anymore, sadly. And we'll get to that in a minute. Now let me read something from a, from a book this guy wrote a couple of years ago. <laughs> Stop it. Um, this is The Cost of Our Silence. Um, 52 of the 56 signers of our Declaration of Independence were deeply committed Orthodox Christians, as well as 39 signers of the Constitution. The others agreed the Bible was God's divine truth and that he personally intervenes in the lives of people. Our founders continued what early American settlers set out to do, establish a society based on biblical Christian morality. For example, going back to Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the First Continental Congress was opened with prayer in September 7, the year 1774. Now, let me read to you what... Uh, after reading Psalm 35, the Congress opened in prayer. Reverend Jacob Duche prayed, O Lord in heaven, our heavenly Father, high and mighty King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, this was in Congress now. Government leaders. King of kings and Lord of lords who dost from thy throne Behold all dwellers on earth, and reignest with power supreme, and uncontrolled over all the kingdoms, empires, and governments. Look down in mercy, we beseech thee, on these American states who have fled to thee from the rod of the oppressor, and thrown themselves on thy gracious protection, desiring henceforth to be dependent only on thee. To thee they have appealed for the righteousness of their cause." Thee do they now look up for that countenance and support which thou alone canst give. Take them, therefore, Heavenly Father, under thy nurturing care. Give them wisdom in counsel and valor in the field. Defeat the malicious design of our cruel adversaries. Convince them of the unrighteousness of their cause. And if they persist in their purpose, O oh, let the voice of thine own unerring justice sounding in their hearts constrain them to drop the weapons of war from their unnerved hands in the day of battle. Be thou present, O God of wisdom, and direct the counsels of this honorable assembly. Enable them to settle things on the best and surest foundation, that, that the scene of blood may be speedily closed, that order Harmony and peace may be effectually restored and truth and justice, religion and piety prevail and flourish among thy people. Preserve the health of their bodies and vigor of their minds. Shower down on them and the millions they here represent. Such temporal blessings as thou seest expedient for them in this world and crown them with everlasting glory in the world to come. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Savior. Amen. In Congress, they prayed publicly, proudly. They taught their families from the scriptures at that time. I think those were the days before electricity. 
they didn't have the internet and games and direct TV or dish or iPods, iPads, blackberries, blueberries, strawberries. <laughs> and they had candles and they had food from the earth, many of them farmers. And they ate with their families and then moved a couple feet over from the kitchen to the dining area or out to the living room with a candle there and cracked open the Bible and taught their children. That's how they educated their kids. From the historical writings that we have available to us, most prominent founders, patriots, leaders, they quoted the Bible approximately 94% of the time. I'll say that again. From all the documents historically that we have from our founders, early patriots and leaders in America, they quoted the Bible in their writings approximately 94% of the time. What is in American textbooks today? Drag queens, yeah. Are Bible verses allowed? God forbid. I just, I, there's a bunch of quotes here that I wasn't going to get to, but I want to read one from one of our early founders. Josiah Bartlett said that the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ may be made known to all the nations, pure and undefiled religion, universally prevail, and the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord. Okay, one more. John Adams, I have examined all religions. And the result is that the Bible is the best book in the world. It contains more of my philosophy than all the libraries I have seen. Also, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount contain my religion. Oh, there's so many good ones. Anyway, I wanted to read a little bit of history. And I, I believe that was from a chapter called, What's Happening to Our Heritage? So there's a little history. Now, let's look at just two indicators that we have fallen away. I don't think I need to give you guys much evidence in light of what we just read, that we, how we were established, <clears throat> that it's easy to fall away in just one generation, as the people of Israel did. Let's look at education, and let's look at the church, okay? Christianity. Uh, first, a little background. Um, Christians in the 1800s were gaining influence, um, some consider that century the greatest missionary century in history, the 1800s. <clears throat> Our culture, institutions, laws, and businesses were influenced by believers, Christians, who for the most part were not ashamed to live their faith and live their faith publicly and discuss spiritual things. But let's go to, uh, back a little bit to the 1600s. This is fascinating to me. And I think in my first book, I wrote about this. Um, Harvard University, uh, ministers such as John Harvard established uh, Harvard University. And what did they do? The first earliest days of Harvard, they taught theology. They taught the Bible. You had to know Latin and be able to interpret scripture at Harvard University, which now... Um, you can register, freshmen that register at Harvard can rattle off, they can check one of, I don't know, 50-some possible genders or pronouns or whatever at Harvard University when you register. Let me give you a little, little background here. Um, Harvard College was founded in Christi Glorium, as its founders believed. All knowledge without Christ is vain. And most early universities, by the way, it wasn't just Harvard, but I'm giving you one example here. 50, 50% of the graduates became ministers. The early motto in 1692 was Veritas, Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae. Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae. You know what that means? Truth for Christ and the church. Harvard University. 
1692, they had a motto, their early motto had that very slogan. I mean, we're talking about the university, the great men of God, such as uh, John Quincy Adams, Samuel Adams, some of our earliest founders graduated from Harvard. And let me just show you this. I think we're ready for it. Nope, that was, that's the wrong one. There we go. On the left was the original logo. On the right, today. What's missing? Christ and the church. So if you remove Christ, the source and foundation of absolute truth, if you remove Christ and his body, his people, the church, and you have Veritas, whose Veritas are they teaching if it's not from Christ? So you know you have an idea. This was in, on the left. That was, I think, uh, 1692. The, on the right, I think that was around 1836. Didn't take long, did it, for the logo to say, eh, let's just take Christ out. Let's welcome other people in. Welcome other gods, small g. What did the children of Israel do? Start conforming and blending in with the people around them and people groups and gods, small g. And you remove truth, what do you have? So, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> Samuel Langdon was a colonial chaplain and pastor before becoming president of Harvard in 1776. One year earlier, he spoke to the Massachusetts Provincial Congress in 1776 and said, we, <laughs> we have rebelled against God. We have lost the true spirit of Christianity, though we retain the outward profession and form of it. 1776. We have lost the true spirit of Christianity, though we retain the outward profession and form of it. I had to repent of this in my personal life um, years ago when I, was, I had one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity, and I was trying to live just like the world but profess Christ, and I really had to come to terms and just repent. Um, I think we all need to examine our faith at times and see if we're living for the world or for Christ. But this was 1776. And so there were watchmen on the wall. There were truth proclaimers and defenders trying to wake up the people, trying to wake up generations in this country and trying to wake up the church. Gradually, at Harvard, for the example, to finish that up, Non-Christians came in, liberal administrators and professors slowly began infiltrating Harvard, leading to that drastic change in its motto, so they removed Christ and the church. And around, within uh, 30 years of that time, let me go to the next slide. Oh, I don't have it written out, but I do have who said it. Here we go. Thanksgiving week. <clears throat> Abraham Lincoln probably one of the most well-versed presidents in the Bible, because um, he read it <laughs> often, with full agreement and support of the U.S. Senate, he declared a national day of fasting and prayer to God. Now, that year, um, 1863, I believe it was, he did issue a Thanksgiving proclamation. <clears throat> but I think it was in March of that year, he also issued a prayer to wake up and repent. And I'm just going to quote a little bit from that. This was, now keep this in mind, the time frame here. That this was about 87 years after celebrating America's independence from oppression and uh, from religious persecution. We're here in America, a new land with, with such a bright future and the glory of God as it's focused, as many of the founders said, to advance the Christian faith in this new land. So this was within 87 years after celebrating our independence. And uh, Lincoln was concerned at that time about the country's pride, financial blessings, prosperity. We think, well, how can that be a bad thing? Are you with me? 
Think about that. How could financial blessings and prosperity be a bad thing? I think you know if you look at America today. No explanation necessary. It leads to comfort, complacency, the pursuit of leisure, entertainment. If you're convicted, go to God. I'm just the messenger. Um, that goes hand in hand with spiritual apathy, doesn't it? History proves it time after time again. We have lessons from Scripture, lessons from our own country. So in 1863, this is part of Lincoln's proclamation. We know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. 1863. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom or virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God who made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Imagine what Lincoln and most of our founders would think or say if they could see what this country had become, has become. It kind of grieves your heart a little bit, doesn't it? But what do you think it does to God? It must grieve God's heart. I know this is a heavier message today, guys, um, but you know where our hope is. Our challenge is, are we living it or are we just professing it with our lips but our hearts far from him? The 1900s, uh, America experienced unprecedented economic growth, success, industry, industry, Population was growing, families became busier, moms went out and started working, daycare raised kids. By 1918, more worldly temptations with everything around you, all the activities you could do now, much entertainment. States required mandatory school attendance for children, and the public education movement rapidly expanded in the decades to follow. Progressives such as socialist John Dewey, who is known by most as the father of American education. He was an atheist. He was very influential in the development and direction of the system of education in America. 1934, he wrote an essay. He actually influenced the National Education Association, the teacher curriculums, um, he was really focused on the collective. Um, he said in 1934, there is no God and no soul. Hence, there are no needs for the props of traditional religion. Immutable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room in education for fixed natural law or permanent moral absolutes. Let's move ahead. Um, 1925, this is a, right around that time. Boy, that was an awful time in history. Uh, the 20s, the teens, the 20s, and the 30s. Although more businesses and corporations were being birthed and more wealth and success was expanding in America, morally, oh Lord, have mercy. Um, one thing that happened at that time, the early 1920s, there were laws in uh, many states that it, you could not teach evolution in public schools. You could not teach any theory. You could only teach creation or intelligent design about the God of the Bible creating the heavens and the earth. Well, there were fights against these laws and there was a lot of opposition, of course, as al there always is, and today, my goodness, but it had to start somewhere. So uh, the ACLU, I believe, was around at that time. They 
hired a man to go into a school in Tennessee and just as a substitute teacher, he went in and they, they told him, we're going to cover you now. We've got you covered. We're going to pay your fines. Go in and teach evolution in school. Of course, he was suspended. He got arrested. I think it was a $100 fine or something like that so that the ACLU could have a court case. So it could go to court. So basically, it was the Snopes trial, monkey trial. Do you guys remember that? A little bit from history. Um, it was a big thing back then. Here it is. This was outside. The courtroom was a zoo, not a literal zoo. But So the people were all upset about this. They, there was an anti-evolution league. And this court, um, this case took place. What happened was, I think that was the first trial where it was broadcast on radio. The radio was just a new thing then, and, and I think that just happened where it was the first trial. And really, the Bible was put on trial. The Bible was put on trial. Christians were framed as narrow-minded, judgmental, fundamental, um, old-fashioned, unwilling to progress with the times, and it was successful in that respect. The guy didn't win the trial because he was guilty of teaching evolution in the schools, but the left scored a major victory in public opinion because they made Christians look like, what, you believe that, that book? You don't believe science? <laughs> oh, Lord. So do you know science just means knowledge, the word science? It just means knowledge. Do you think there's any knowledge in the pages of Scripture? Wisdom and knowledge and truth? Um, so anyway, they did make Christians look bad, which was part of the purpose and to stir up uh, resistance. But now, think about today, the theory of evolution is taught to America's children in government-run schools, not as a theory, but as fact and truth. Isn't it? You with children that have recently gone through school, maybe you have kids in school now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Let me ask you this. Are they teaching anything from Scripture? Are they teaching anything about the possibility of a God that created the heavens and the earth? Anything? No. No. Let's be fair. I'm not suggesting that we should only teach the Bible in public schools. <laughs> Although that's how all the schools, when we first started, that's what they taught the Bible before we got you know, so educated in America. Um, but that's what they taught. I'm saying... Teach both sides, both views, and give the kids a choice. Teach here. Some people believe in creation. Let's teach from the Bible and Genesis. And other people believe in evolution. And, you know, we came from nothing, and then nothing exploded into something, and then an organism or something happened, and then something happened to get to a living organism, and then that ended up in the sea, and then that ended up on land, and then that crawling thing ended up standing, and then... It, it may have been an ape, but then it ended up to be a man. And there's a lot of missing things along the way. You know what I mean? But teach both. Just teach both and let people decide. Isn't that critical thinking? Okay, I'm not saying preach the Bible in public schools. So I don't think I need to hammer that home anymore because that's my, both my parents were in education, 34 years in the public school system, and it has changed drastically as you know, just from some of the stories you're hearing now that are so sad coming out of the school systems. I mean, public schools now allow ABC, right? Anything but Christ. ABC. That's the curriculum. And I mean anything. They're, and the, they, they're teaching you know, the, the transgender issue, the drag queens, anything else. They're, they're trying to get to kids younger and younger. And how many of you have seen the, the headlines that I think Elizabeth Warren and someone else, one of the other uh, nominees, potential nominees for the Democrat uh, Party. They want to keep kids, uh, no, Kamala Harris, I think. They want to keep kids at school till 6 p.m. All day. Keep them away from their parents, especially those Christian parents. Right now, they're only away from the parents eight hours a day, seven, five days a week. And that's enough. And they want to go more. Oh, Lord, help us. So, this is not in the message. Our, let's talk about hours of influence for 30 seconds here. How much time, 
do you, did you have, or let's just say if, if you have kids, how much time do your kids get in the Word of God on a typical weekday? Think about that. Don't answer out loud. I don't want you to embarrass yourself. <laughs> well, you might be a rare case. How much time do you, do you get in the education of true wisdom, knowledge, and truth from the Word of God? Weekdays, young kids, okay? All right, how much time do you get with peers, people that don't believe in God, teachers that are told to teach a certain thing that goes against the truth of Scripture, and in fact, many of which are, are hostile toward Christianity. How much time? How many hours? Six to eight a day? Do you see part of the problem here? Um, let's just go through some of these things that have been taught or allowed in public schools. Atheism, Buddhism, yoga, mindfulness, Hinduism, Islam, secular progressivism, sexual experimentation. Here, here's a condom. Uh, transgender tolerance, witchcraft, new age. Do you think I'm exaggerating? If you've been out of school for a while, you think I'm exaggerating. There are, go to the NEA website. There are pages on that site about teaching Harry Potter lessons. What's Harry Potter? Is it really? No, but Wicca. What is Wicca? Witches, witchcraft. Um, they are a nonprofit religious organization with a 501c3 status. Wicca, the international Wiccan church or something like that. So Wicca, witchcraft. They're excited that their teachers are teaching Harry Potter. They're thrilled. Well, this is great. We never thought it would get into the schools this, this much. Um, so the NEA has become hostile toward the God of the Bible. Um, they're teaching mindfulness, um, quiet, meditation, empty the mind. Um, a lot of things that are just not biblical. Uh, Islam has been promoted, not just tolerated, but promoted above many others um, for different reasons. Kids, I mean, we've done stories on this recently where kids are being taught the Shahada, that's the declaration of faith in Islam, that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and they're teaching kids to profess that. Can you imagine them teaching kids a scripture? Like Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. No, sorry, you can't say that. Oh, separation of church and state. But everything else is allowed. ABC, anything but Christ. Um, on its website, you know, you can check out uh, the NEA website, LGBT proclamations under the guise of tolerance and diversity and everything else. We can't deny next, going back to this, this idea of witchcraft, we can't deny the culture. Look at the television. I mean, The Walking Dead. I couldn't remember the name of that show. The Walking Dead. I don't know how many years that's been on TV. Do we have a fascination with death, demons, zombies, zombies witchcraft, the afterlife, the supernatural? We do. Um, but since the 90s, witchcraft has become very popular. Black magic is cool now. Casting spells is fun. And you can learn about it in the public school system paid for with our taxes. Let me just share with you Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, if you have any question about this. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. We're in Deuteronomy 18. Verse 12 says, For whoever of you, whoever does these things, is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. So how could we conclude on historical lowlights now? Just, I, I could 
spend hours on this because I've written so much about it, but one more key issue. We've got to talk about Molech. How could we go on without mentioning... Hmm. That's what Pastor Landon put this together. Offering your babies, sacrificing your children to the, to the God of Molech. How could we not talk about abortion in America, which has practically become a sacrament to the Democrat Party? They're willing to sacrifice kids up until the moment they're born. Up until the moment. I think New York, New York has a law. They passed that law. Virginia. This is amazing, you guys. This is amazing. Um, let me go share just a little bit of history. Margaret Sanger birthed this movement in America. Uh, she coined the term birth control. Um, she wanted to control the population. If you don't know about her agenda, she is the founder of Planned Parenthood. She was an atheist, a eugenicist, a racist, and a socialist. And she led a movement beginning in the 1920s that has resulted in, in the murder of approximately 100 million babies in America. Now, we've heard the like 60-some million, right? But that's since 1973. Sanger started this in the early 1920s, started writing about it in the teens there that on the left, that's her publication, The Birth Control Re Review. Nice little uh, cartoon there with a woman chained to a ball that says, what does it say? Unwanted babies. The founder of Planned Parenthood. That's how she framed it. Women are chained. And that's how they framed it in 1973 in the court case Roe v. Wade. So it's lawful to terminate the life of an unborn child or preborn baby. You know it's human now. We have all the technology that they didn't have in 1973 when the, the question in the court case was actually asked, how do we really know when life begins? That, that's in the court transcript in Roe v. Wade, 1973. Remember this, man cannot make moral what God has declared immoral. Man cannot make moral what God has declared immoral. Oh, but 1973, it's legal to kill babies now. For what reason? I don't know, choice. Freedom. Well, they're, they're a big, heavy ball and chain. Oh, and the Supreme Court in 2015, same-sex marriage. I think 30-some states had a ban on same-sex marriage to protect natural marriage, God-ordained marriage. 30-some states. In 2015, that one Supreme Court decision wiped out all those states' decisions. Over, overdid the will of millions and millions of Americans in those states that had bans on same-sex marriage. Now, public opinion has shifted. Why? Well, of course, the Supremes decided. What changed? Did Almighty God change, the creator of the heavens and the earth and all things and life? Or did the people change? Did the culture change? Did the church in America change? Oh, but we've got to abide by the laws, right? Well, you tell me. If it's an immoral law and it goes against God's word, is civil disobedience required? I'm not going to answer that, but I certainly know what our early founders would have done. Muskets loaded. <laughs> A revolution. Because they came here, why? That earlier quote from William, William Bradford, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith for king, capital K, king of kings, lord of lords, and country. 
So bring it back to us. We've got to put on the full armor of God, friends. We've got people around us that need to hear the truth. They need to hear the gospel. They need to be, uh, Christians need to be challenged. They need to be encouraged in their faith. Um, I didn't want to jump ahead yet. One thing I want to share with you. I came up with this. Um, remember those verses in Judges chapter 2? I'm going to change a few words to show you how these principles apply. I think we've made the case without even talking about all the areas of culture and society that have been declining morally. But what does it come down to? It is a spiritual war, isn't it? There is a war on truth. There is a war on God. Paul writes to Timothy to be a soldier of Christ. He says, fight the good fight of faith. He, Paul says, put on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6 because it is a spiritual war and we need to put on that armor, friends. And our offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit. I can sum up this spiritual and cultural battle in three words. Ready? God or man. God or man. We are either going toward God, moving toward God, pursuing him, seeking him, speaking his truth, pursuing the things of God, or we're conforming to the world, we're going in the direction of man, where man is God, small g, and the things of man, and loving this world. So going back to those verses in Judges, I thought I'd write this, and then we're going to conclude with a few scriptures. Um, <clears throat> And you could change some of the words in here, but in fact, let me just, that, that main verse again, where was that? In Judges 2.10. Um, so this section, Judges 2, 6 through 12, mark that, but the verse that was most disappointing and disheartening is verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served other gods. So let's look at this. That was to the children of Israel, but there are principles that we can take and say, okay, that's a parallel I see for America. America is not mentioned in scripture. Let's be clear. That was a word to the people of God, but I paraphrased it this way. When God provided for the early settlers and the population grew, the Constitution of the United States was established, religious freedom was assured, godly men were elected to office and the gospel was preached, life was enjoyed. The pursuit of happiness became a goal. After that generation had died, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord Jesus, nor the work he had done in the early days of this country. Then the citizens of America did evil in the sight of the Lord and served other gods, such as money, power, entertainment, sex, and abortion. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of England, and they allowed the living God to be banned from their schools and mocked in the public square. Though almost everyone could read, fewer people actually read the Bible. And they followed other gods from among the cults and false religions of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Zechariah 1 verse 3 says, um, therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. Christians in America, we've fallen away in many generations, but we can return to God. We are here for such a time as this, and we have a job to do. <clears throat> and Jesus spoke directly to the church. And remember Revelation chapter 3. I just want to share a verse um, 19 through 22. Jesus, now this was the church. Um, yes, I have it right there. The church at Laodicea. As many as I love, 
I rebuke and chasten. New Testament scriptures say God disciplines those he loves. If he doesn't love you, he won't discipline you. But if he loves you, he will discipline you. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now that verse, verse 20, has been used a lot often as an evangelical verse to non-Christians. In context, Revelation 2 and 3 are letters or words spoken specifically to Christians, to churches, the seven churches of the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. It's all they are, letters to churches, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Thyatira, Ephesus, this one to Laodicea. Verse 20 is a verse to believers. Let's take it as a verse to us believers in the church in America because I think it might apply that many of us need to go back and return to him. Jesus is standing at the door knocking on the door of his church. He's standing at the door. This is not people who don't know him. They need to be saved. They need to hear the gospel. But we need to repent as a nation. But it's got to start with us. It's got to start with the church. Stop living for the world. Stop loving the world. Stop worshiping the United States of entertainment. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. We're talking about fellowship. We're talking about koinonia, communion with the Savior in his presence, his fullness of joy. That's what he is inviting us to do. Believers, the church. Yes, we're surrounded by evil. Yes, there's a war on truth going on. Yes, this nation's moral and spiritual foundations have been attacked and shaken. Culture collapsing, it seems. The church has been weakened, but not destroyed. If God be for us, who can be against us? He has a work for us to do. And we are, as Matthew 5.16 says, we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Our instruction from God's word is to trust him. Repent if necessary. Pray, engage in the battle. Don't check out because things seem overwhelming. Romans 12, uh, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. It's easy to be overwhelmed, but that's when you've got to cast your cares. And we also have to overcome the temptation to seek our own comfort and world, worldly success and we don't know how much time we have left here, friends. It's one day at a time. One day at a time. So I believe for America to have any hope to be saved, that he's calling the church back to him. Return to me, he's saying. Return to me, and I will return to you. And James in chapter 4 says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. There's so many promises in Scripture, but we have to take that step. He invites us. Come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace at, the time, at a time of need. Come boldly. We don't have to crawl. Yes, we are to be reverent before a holy God, but he invites us to come to him. You might not need this message today, but... I know someone in your family or in your life does need to hear this. Someone who professes Christ with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Don't be afraid to challenge people with the truth. Okay? Speak the truth in love, but speak the truth. For his glory, for his kingdom, when Christ returns, may he find us faithful. And may you and I say, like many early American pilgrims and patriots, like Joshua, you know the scripture, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenging message today. I ask that you would penetrate hearts who, uh, of those who need to hear and make a decision on how to live, what to change, habits, lifestyle, how much time they're investing in kingdom,
purposes, in your word, in your truth, versus how much time is being invested or spent in worldly pursuits and pleasures. Help us to find that balance, Lord. Help us to find that balance, Lord. You are the God of truth. Lead us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you. Thank you so much for providing for us. We thank you in this nation with the religious freedoms we still have. We don't know how much longer, Lord, but on this Thanksgiving week, we are so blessed to be in such a country that people are still, to this day, risking their lives to come to. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness. Forgive us for taking life for granted, our salvation, the truth. We forgive us for taking all of your blessings and your goodness for granted. And we love you and we turn back to you now, God. Renew our hearts. We lift them up to you and we pray, God, that you lead us and guide us and give us strength as you promised to and daily bread one day at a time. We trust you in all things and we praise you for your great faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.